welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Jessica with Syosset Library, Turn the Page podcast. I am really excited today to uh, introduce our guest, who is a Syosset alum and a filmmaker, um, among many, many things. His name is Stephen Taub, and his film, Impresarios and Visionaries, will be showing at Syosset Library on December 16th. Uh, Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Jessica. So, um, first of all, I just want to ask you a little bit, um, how did you, how did you become, how did you get into filmmaking and the arts? Um, yeah, thanks for asking. It's, uh, I was, I, I just always loved story, storytelling, always loved literature, and I loved visualizations. So for me, it was just a natural progression to become a filmmaking, but the crux of it, or certainly the foundation of it is my Uh, if I have any, is my literary skills and my writing capabilities. And I started as a intern right here on Long Island at WLIW Channel 21 PBS, became a union cameraman, and then worked my way up to becoming a producer. And I learned all about the PBS system. And that's how I got involved with PBS with my documentary way back when, Laugh a Day, and uh, other things that I've done. So uh, talk a little bit about the film, um, Impresarios and Visionaries. It, it looks really, really nice. Um, it, it kind of opens with, is that, was that, that was Richie Havens, correct? Correct, yeah, good get. That was Richie Havens. <laughs> and yes. he, he performed at Intermedia Art Center, which is one of the storylines in the film. And to backtrack, what the film is about, um, it's about the founders of two art houses in Huntington, Long Island, Intermedia Art Center and Cinema Art Center. And these were two of the original art houses. One was mostly a film house and one was mostly a music performance, but they overlapped a little doing other things. And what a lot of people don't know, not just here on Long Island, but they were two of the very first art houses to show the type of entertainment, music, film, etc., that you'd only see in a city. And they just said, why can't this be in the suburbs? And it kind of started in Huntington, which was always the hub of progressive entertainment. And it kind of started with Harry Shapin. So the triangle is a little bit about the Shapin family, about Intermedia Art Center and about cinema arts. But I also utilized both of the theaters and the people that, the, that were the founders, Michael Rothbard of Intermedia Art Center, Vic Skolnick of Cinema Art Center, along with Kathy Bodley at Intermedia Art Center and Charlotte Skye of Cinema Art Center is um, they just wanted to create a cutting edge scene and really do what was right. You know, bring in jazz, bring in world music, bring in foreign films, things again, like I said earlier, that you would only see in a major metropolitan city, but now it's in, it was in the suburbs. And again, the Shapin family kind of started the Huntington scene and these people expanded upon it. That's really interesting. And I have to say, I mean, you're like, you're spot on with 
the way that Huntington felt, you know, obviously um, I was younger, you know, but I do remember going to the Cinema Arts Center um, and um, the Intermediate Arts Center and just kind of being like feeling, you know, getting that feeling that uh, I was outside of the norm of uh, suburbia, you know, it, it really, it really was successful in the way that um, I, I suppose it was conceived. I, I actually had not known that before. Yeah, that's that's you know precisely the vibe that they wanted to create. And what was great about Michael and Vic is they were both very approachable. They were both mentors to me, and um, and they always prior to the show, whether it was a film or a concert or whatever it might be, they always spoke to the audience. And it was always like speaking to a, an educated arts neighbor. They weren't full of themselves. They were both great people and they were true impresarios, hence the name of, of the film, Impresarios and Visionaries. And um, yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, like yourself, I saw a lot of great performance at Intermediate Arts Center and certainly a lot of great films at Cinema Arts Center. So in general, how long had you been thinking about making this film? Uh, I, I'd been thinking about it for years and years. And as most people know, and maybe some people don't know, it's, it's always about raising funds to get a film made. Uh, to digress for a second, just tell you a quick story. Uh, Orson Welles is obviously one of the best known directors of this century, certainly considered one of the top five by most, by most film aficionados. Um, what, prior to his passing away, he was interviewed by a journalist a few months before he died. And the journalist said to him, if you weren't a filmmaker, what would you have done for a living? And he said, I would have been a novelist or a writer because a grown man always looking to raise money is no way for a grown man to live. And when I saw that Orson Welles made that statement, I was like, okay, then I know it's not, you know, I'm in the same boat on a far lower level. But yeah, so I thought about it for years and years. And um, then when they, unfortunately, both of the gentlemen, Michael and Vic, who I'd mentioned earlier, they both have passed away. And I thought it was nice to do a dedication. And it's something I must add is Sandy Shapin, who was in the film, and has rare photos of the Harry, of Harry Shapin and the Shapin family in film that had never been seen before. She was nice enough to give me. Um, she really did a lot to help get this film made and she very much wanted Michael and Vic to be recognized because she was very aware and rightfully so that Harry Shapin is a very recognized person from the area and Michael Vic, not so much. So she really wanted to get this film made and uh, she was very helpful in making that happen as, as was the entire community of Huntington and, and, you know, and, and more than just Huntington. Yeah, I would definitely say Harry Shapin uh, in general is, um, you know, like, his name is an institution on Long Island um, and an institution for doing good, That's especially. And, and, and to connect it to Syosset, when I was in, and I forget if it was 11th or 12th grade, Harry Shapin came to our high school. And I don't know if we actually had, if they had it later on, um, but he came, we used to have just a free period where you could do whatever you want. And just kind of they kind of made it like a quote unquote college campus. I think they closed it down after things got wild, but I'm not sure what happened after I graduated. But anyway, we had and he just came and hung out for the entire day. And That's incredible. Actually, yeah, yeah. So again, that was you know somewhere in the mid to late 70s, and I got the opportunity to go down and speak to him. And 
I, you know, I, I loved his music like so many other people did. And he just looked me in the eye and he just, you know, he actually really cared about me. And I was kind of a wild kid, so to speak, and made quite an impression on me. This guy looked me in the eye and just actually cared about me and cared enough about the entire student body that he came down and just hung out for the day. And he'd pick up his guitar and he would talk to us and pick, you know, just, it was just amazing that he was there. And so it really is full circle that all these years later, I made a film which his widow Sandy was involved in and he's in the film. So it's just kind of a nice circle. Unfortunately, he did die obviously way too young. And um, as a lot of people, a lot of people don't know who Harry Shapin is. So what I always sing very poorly is Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon. That's his song. And they go, oh yeah, yeah, I know that guy, Cats in the Cradle guy. But what a lot of people don't know and talking about her quite a bit is actually Sandy wrote the lyrics for that song. She was a poet. I did not know that. Really? Most people, most people don't know, but this is a fact. And uh, Sandy, Sandy's a poet. And she had written the lyrics about their son, Josh. And it was written as a poem. And Harry went down for breakfast or for lunch, whatever it might be, saw it on the table and said, wow, if I rewrite this, I think I have a song here. And so actually the original draft of the song or the gist of the song uh, was written by Sandy, Cats in the Cradle. Well, that is one song I have to say, no matter when, like if it's on or if I walk into a place where it is, there are definitely people crying just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's just such an amazing song. So you're showing this movie, um, you're showing the film at Syosset Library on December 16th. Um, thank you so much for bringing it to uh, local doors. I, I love going to libraries. I like I had mentioned to you in the email, um, my cheers show what a nerd that I am is the Melville Library. I live out here in Melville, the Melville Dix Hills District. When I walk into the Melville branch, every single librarian knows who I am because I frequently take out books and movies and music and I use the place for research. And, and uh, so it's a pleasure to go to libraries. And I love the patrons at libraries because they're really involved and they're really interactive. And that's what makes it fun to me, for me is to um you know it's just to interact with people and talk about the arts and talk about filmmaking and what i'm passionate about and hear what you know what their interests are in fact it's it's funny i have presented at Syosset library a couple of times before and one of the times i was presenting at Syosset library one of the patrons actually said to me wow it's very funny that you natalie portman and judd apatow all went to Syosset high school and my response was, yeah, but I'm pretty sure that Natalie Portman and Judd Apatow, they're not doing library appearances. And so you got a good laugh. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I we, you know, the floor is open, Judd and Natalie. They've they've both been on the podcast, but uh, but no, I, I do I do imagine uh you are absolutely correct on that one. Um so Aside from this film, you've done quite a few others. Um, I saw snippets of uh, "There's a Day in the Life of a Stand-Up Comedian." Yeah, well, that, was, that, yeah. that was that was a set. I did a documentary, like I said to you earlier. I worked at Channel Twenty One, worked on the Pledge programming, documentary, weekly shows, news, and all that. And I was always really into comedy. And that's kind of where I overlap with Judd Apatow, where I was hanging out at this place. Called called Eastside Comedy Club because I worked at the local video store clerk while he was there as either a busboy or a dishwasher. And we didn't really, I didn't know him at all. I didn't even know he was there because I'm four or five years older than him. 
even though we both attended Syosset High School. And so I always was really interested in comedy. And I, when I used to go there, when I was in my early 20s working at the video store, back when they used to rent out videos, VHS tapes, uh, now you go to the library and get a, you know, a DVD or uh, um, whatever it might be, whatever format. And I would look at the comedians. I used to say, you know, someday I'm going to be working with these guys, guys like Bob Nelson and Rob Bartlett. And, and uh, sure enough, both of those guys were in my documentary Laugh a Day, along with some better known comedians like Robert Klein and Richard Belzer and David Brenner and Jeff Garland and Second City Improv and Jack Hanna. They all ended up being in my documentary Laugh a Day. And what I decided to do is because I had been working at PBS, and the audience is kind of an older audience that watches PBS. I said, why don't I try to create a documentary that still appeases an older audience, but will play to a younger audience. So the show again was called Laugh a Day and it was five different segments of about laughter in a 30 minute show. And one of the segments like you just mentioned was day in the life of a stand-up comedian. So it was one of five segments. And that I followed a comedian named who's a great comedian, Dom Marrero around from his hotel to the green room, to the stage, and then back to the green room. We spent, you know, close to 10 hours with him. And again, he was just such a pleasure to be with. Him. He was as funny off camera as he was on camera and on stage. And then the B-roll to that was I had interviewed David Brenner, Richard Belzer, and Robert Klein talking about the, their comedic experiences and their life experiences. So as we went through the day with Dumarera, I got reflection and feedback of what it was like being a comedian by these three, uh, um, you know, great comedians. And it was, you know, that was, that, that was one of the most fun yeah. things I think because I love comedy. Yeah, no, it looked really interesting. And I like they talk a little bit about um, just kind of like the science of stand up or just kind of how it works. You know, you say something funny and you wait. And um, I, you know, I, I think like what was so interesting is it, it seems like you're really putting yourself out there. I mean, I always um, I've been to stand up shows and I enjoy stand up shows, but it seems very difficult. Well, I've, I tried stand-up twice, which wasn't for me, because it is very difficult. I mean, your stomach's turning, all of a sudden, the lights are in front of you, you half can't see the audience, you half can't see the audience when you're on stage, because the lights are looking at you. And it's, you know, I, I've written some jokes for, for comedians, which, is, which has been fun, you know, seeing them perform my jokes, and a couple of them are well-known comedians. And, but I'm, I'm definitely, you know, like they say, I have a face for radio, or I belong behind the camera, so I enjoy writing and uh, performing for the most part isn't for me, though I'm very comfortable talking to an audience, but making them laugh is really difficult. But like I believe it was Dom Herrera said, I haven't looked at the piece in a long time, so I believe it was him that said, the most important when you're doing stand-up is that first and second joke, where you really got to make them laugh because now they assume you're really funny because you really made them laugh. So now if your third, fourth, and fifth jokes are just sevens, they might see it as a nine because they already think you're funny. But if they don't think you're funny at the beginning, that same seven can be seen as a five, so to speak. So, and then, he, then like he talks about, then you want to come up with a great ending and do a killer ending. But, you know, a guy like Don Marrera has got a strong 40, 45 minutes. So even his middle is very funny because he's a very funny comedian. And then you also, I um, did a documentary with, um, was it five Holocaust survivors? Well, this wasn't a documentary. The organization that I worked for, the Center for Social Justice and Human Understanding, 
which is located at Suffolk Community College. They're an independent not-for-profit, but they're located at Suffolk Community College, uh, the Selden campus. And I had produced a video for them years ago about a different topic matter, and they were gifted a touch screen. And they were happy with my interviewing skills and how I put together video. And they knew I had the PBS background. And for many, many years, they had these five Holocaust survivors speaking at the college. So when they were gifted the touchscreen, they had gotten a grant and they wanted me to do an in-depth interview with these five Holocaust survivors for their touchscreen. So, so, so the people that know what it's all about, the way it works is I sat down with the two college professors that knew them for 10 years. And we spent hours and hours and hours together over like three sessions, probably 60 to 90 minutes each time where it was like, I knew these five people inside out. Two of them were from Poland, three of them were from Germany. And I knew their families, I knew their backgrounds, I knew everything about them. After I had all this information, I then sat down with one of the two college professors. I wrote the first draft and then we wrote the questions for all five of these people. And I was able to write all the proper questions again because I had done the pre-production, my research and asked them questions about their particular life and you know what they went through during the war and during the Holocaust. And um, it really, it changed, it changed my life. In fact, I, you know, I'd said when I had done that job that pretty much whatever happens to me for the rest of my life, I can't complain about it, about anything. And once we had the pandemic, it, I never forgot what I said to myself. And I said, what these five people endured and you know what their families endured and the death that they saw, death of family members they saw, and the fact that they were, you know, kind enough to share that with me and share it for the touch screen so we can keep their memories alive and keep history alive. Um, it was really a privilege beyond belief to have done that. And uh, um, it was, it, it was, it was heartwarming and it was, it was something else doing that. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that really struck me in um, the snippet that I saw was uh, the the one person who, you know, was say, um, he was saying, you know, um, a wise man learns from history, history's mistakes or others mistakes. Um, you know, a fool learns only from his own mistakes. And I thought that, that was yeah, that that was like a, a fabulous quote. Um, yeah, so I mean, if anybody needs a hook for this. There you go. Yeah, and, and you know, and the importance of having done that is unfortunately, from the last time I've been in touch with the center, which is probably about a month, maybe even two months ago, is I know three of the five people have passed away. Uh, Werner, who was one of the five, who actually did a TED talk, he just very recently passed away. And one, I mean, one of the things he was telling me about is him being in Auschwitz and doing card tricks for Goebel to get an extra piece of of bread a week. And, uh, you know, the stories were, were phenomenal. And, and the humor that he had, he was one of the wisest people I've, I've ever met. People have actually asked me, of all the people you've interviewed, you've interviewed musicians and comedians and CEOs of companies, because I have a background doing a lot of corporate work and TV commercials as well. They said, you know, if you had to pick out somebody, for me, the gentleman Werner Reich was just like nobody I ever met. He was just so funny. He was so wise. And I just have to tell you this one story, which is slightly inappropriate, but it's so Werner and it's just the right thing. So 
I knew these interviews were going to be very, very heavy. And I had set it up, you know, I bring in a full crew, a lighting person, an audio person, a cameraman. Um, one of the college professors was kind enough to sit diagonally behind me because I explained to her, look, when I ask questions, it's not a Q&A, it's a conversation. So I don't really go in order. Can you kind of cross them out? And that way, at, towards the end, you can just tell me what I missed because I want to keep it. It's more about flow than this is my question. Answer, this is my question. I want to keep it conversational. And so I knew it was going to be heavy. So what I decided to do with the five interviews was make it over two days, which meant it was going to cost me more because I had to bring the crew in twice, but I felt it was more important to do it right. So we interviewed three people one day and two people another day. And after interviewing Werner, um, you know, we're chatting and this room at the Center for Social Justice and Human Understanding has all sorts of Holocaust artifacts you know, the clothing the prisoners wore and just all sorts of various things that were actually in the concentration camps or certainly in Germany at that time during World War II, you know, historical artifacts. And just coincidentally, right behind Werner, there was within a glass case hanging up uh, a whip that was actually used to whip people in concentration camps, whether it was the Jewish people or the gypsies or whoever else that were in the concentration camp. So I kind of just used that since it was right over his left shoulder. And again, we were done, the interview was over, everybody was packing the equipment, it was just Warner and I conversing. I said, Warner, what's it like with everything you went through to be in a room like this that kind of takes you back in time? These are all artifacts from either concentration camps or certainly from that period of Germany. I said, and specifically, what's it like, you know, looking at a whip behind you, behind your shoulder that was actually utilized you know, to beat people for really for nothing, for just being Jewish or for being a homosexual or for whatever it is, which is obviously beyond absurd. It's, it's heinous. And Werner kind of paused. And like I said, he's this unbelievably wise guy who every word is measured. And you really just want to, you know, he's one of those people you really do lean forward. And one of these people that no matter how long you talk to him, you wanted to talk to him for five minutes more, no matter how, you know, he was just, you know, he was phenomenal. Werner looks at me and you can see he's thinking about it. And he goes, you know, Steve, he goes, sticks and stones will break my bones. He goes, but whips and chains, they can be fun sometimes. And the fact that that was his Whoa. answer. And my video <laughs> crew was all packing their stuff up. We all started, it was this funny, it, was, it might be the, fun, yeah. of all the comedians I work with, it might be the funniest, because I was expecting this whole heavy thing and and he was going to be, you know, explaining. Yeah. This whole thing. And he just ended up hitting me with the best punchline I ever heard. You know, sticks and stones could break my bones, but whips and chains, they could be fun sometimes. And, you know, this is a guy in his late 80s, maybe his early 90s. And that was his yeah. And I, I got to tell you, we were all on the floor laughing. <laughs> you know, I think that there's, um, I've heard so many things about gallows humor or just like humor that comes from like the darkest places. Um, he sounds really, really interesting. Yeah, well, in the interview, he did mention that, you know, laughter is what got them through. I mean, you know, they found time, you know, through all the, the, the harrowing experiences they had, which are beyond belief, um, that they, they found time to laugh. And in fact, you know, that's a, that's a project. And, you know, thank you for bringing it up, Jessica, that I want to revisit because, you know, right now it's at a touchscreen in Suffolk County, it came out, you know, it's something I'm very proud of. It came out really, really nice. 
In fact, I know one of the people that worked on it told me, he goes, he goes, Steve, he goes, I went to the Jewish Museum in Brooklyn and I saw Holocaust testimonials. He goes, I'm not just saying this because we did it. It was my audio and lighting person. He said, but what we did, he goes, the people look so much more natural, the video qualities. I said, yeah, I kind of know it came out pretty good. And what I'd like to do, I would like to revisit that project and do wraparounds with teachers and professors and historians and, and make it a national teaching tool. So that's something I'd like to do. But again, it goes back to my earlier comments. It's always about raising money, but that is something I very much uh, really want to get out there nationally. Uh, obviously the Ken Burns documentary was beautiful, but it's not as much a teaching tool as, as it's more of a historical document. I want to break it up into little, little segments. So uh, uh, a museum, person could use it or a high school or a college professor could also use it to teach their students about the Holocaust. So that's how I, you know, that I, I want that to be phase two of, of those testimonials. So let's talk Syosset a little bit. What sure. elementary school did you go to? I went to the elementary school, right, you know, where the, right where the library is, Syosset Library. I went to AP Willits Elementary School. And so I was, you know, I was, I was somebody who walked to the library into the elementary school, and uh, you know, you know, great experiences in Syosset and then Thompson Junior High School, and then you know, Syosset High School. Obviously, Syosset High School. <laughs> well, I mean, not obviously, but ge but generally, that's that's where we all end up. Uh, what are some like fun stories about just like Syosset that you that you recall? I know we talked a little bit pre-interview, but I, I'd love to hear you share them um, with the with um, the audience, uh, because some of them just sound incredible. Well, well the, the one thing that I, that I want to put out there, and I have no idea what happened, because I'm not one to, you know, I kept in touch with a few people, but for the most part, I'm not one to look back. And I wasn't really one, I went to one reunion, the 10 year reunion, then the other reunions, I just said, you know what, to use a Stephen Wright comedic line, Stephen Wright once said, um, I like to reminisce with people I don't know. That's a Stephen. That's what I kind of felt like, because it's like I'm going to be reminiscing with, you know, one out of 10 people who are my friends and nine out of 10, I wish them all the best, but I don't really know them. And so I wasn't one to go back and do all that. But to answer your question, I, and I'm just curious, if everybody knows whatever happened to Mr. Pardo. Do you remember he taught humanities, which was social studies, and he used to drive a fire truck to the high school because he owned a fire truck. Wow. And he was just a really hip, good guy that paid attention. I actually always remember him saying to me, and I don't, didn't usually remember a lot because uh, some foggy days at Syosset High School, leave it at that, is um, he said, you know, Steve, he goes, you know, you're a very smart person. I know you read a lot and we talk about that. He goes, but you can't be so cynical because it's going to really be a hindrance in your life. And, and I always appreciate that. He kind, of, he kind of actually noticed who I was. Because I guess when you're in high school, you're figuring out who you are and you want to be noticed. So just a shout out to Mr. Pardo for A, being a great teacher and B, even more important, being a great person. So um, you know, it's always nice when a person makes an impact on another person. And then the other story that, I, that kind of comes to my mind, I was kind of a long-haired kid and I was into skiing and riding dirt bikes and I wasn't into that much of the extracurricular activities at Syosset High School. And, and that's totally my loss and I should have been involved with more. Um, but I was always um, a, an ardent reader, a voracious reader, you know, and, and back in high school, I was reading Dostoyevsky and Ken Kesey and the electric Kool-Aid acid test. And it was really, uh, you know, it was really making an impression on who I was as a person. 
And that's kind of when I started writing also. And I submitted a poem to the yearbook and they accepted it. And of course, me being the rebel I was, I didn't even buy my yearbook, but it was, it was like on page four or page six of the yearbook, the poem I wrote. And so the yearbook comes out and people are running around and having people sign it. And you know, a handful full of people had me sign their yearbook. But then a, another handful of people coming up to me, and it's happened a few times, like, Steve, there's a poem here with your name under it. Like, it was like I said, yes, there's a poem there with my name under it, because I wrote it. And they're like, like, they didn't know I could put two sentences together, much less, you know, a, a poem. And that was kind of, you know, the foundation of my writing. Uh, probably, did, I think that was the you, second so thing I ever had published. Did you ever eventually, like, because you, you said you didn't purchase a yearbook? No, I never did. I don't have the yearbook. Really? Yeah, I don't have my yearbook. I, and that's why, that's why I just like, I know it was in the beginning. My poem was either, it was called Future Train. I remember that. And it was either page four or page six. I know it was the first handful of pages, but I don't even remember, you know, exactly which page it was on. That's incredible. Seen it in, you know, decades. I, I also wanted to ask you, because um, you mentioned you saw Billy Joel play with the Hassles. Yeah, that was really funny. So again, the community, I, I didn't see them. I heard them and I didn't even know who they were. So no, I never did actually. But that's visualize. still very cool. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up on a street in you know, the community called Harriet Drive. And that was the same community that AP Willits and Thompson Junior High School and Syasset Library, that little community right there. I had a friend that lived on Melanie Lane. Connecting Melanie Lane to Harriet Drive is a little like four houses or six houses, a little street called Beth Place, if I remember correctly. I can't believe I remember all that, which I do. And... Um, and one of the houses there, there was a house filled with landscaping trucks. And when I'd walk to my friend's house, I'd hear all this loud music inside. And unbeknownst to me, till years and years later, was that was the Hassles, Billy Joel's first band playing there. And when I was a little kid, I used to just hear him all the time, just hear him in the house, just as, you know, just came out as loud noise. And I'd be walking by. And then later on, I, you know, when he talked about it, I said, oh, that's, you know, the group of landscapers, the Hassles that, Billy Joel played with way back when. And then to fast forward that, um, as I was beginning my video production career, I was a bartender at a nightclub in Oyster Bay called Rum Runners Heartbeat. At first it was just Rum Runners. And we had bands like the Ramones there and Joe Jackson there. And so I got to hang out with the Ramones because we'd be setting up the bar while they were doing their sound check. And not a big Ramones fan, but I do have to tell you all the guys in the Ramones were really, really nice people. They love talking about baseball and they always ordered enough pizza to feed the five bartenders and the two barbacks. We used to sit and hang out with the Ramones back then. And Billy Joel used to hang out at the bar on occasion. So we used to see Billy Joel every now and then at Rum Runners. And what a lot of people also don't know, the bass player of his original band, you know, for like the first 10 years before he decided to have a new band, which, you know, normal part of being a musician, you evolve and you change. But Doug Stegmeyer, the bass player, was a Syosset High School graduate who I knew very well. And I ended up borrowing gear from him for a comedy recording I did, a DAT machine, which nobody had. He lived in Centerport. And another Syosset High School graduate, Dean Krauss, who became the musical director for Phoebe Snow and Melanie, did the music for my documentary, Laugh a Day, and there was a band back then called the Long Island All-Stars, which was Billy Joel's entire band without Billy Joel. So when they didn't tour and they just played the local bars just to do gigs, my friend Dean was the keyboard player in that band who was the musical director for Phoebe Snow and Melanie. And that's how I got to know the bass player, Doug Stegmeyer, who 
also was a Syosset High School graduate. And, you know, he was the bass player in Billy Joel's original band. So that's kind of, again, how things wow. kind of go full circle. It's kind of weird. I love it. That's so cool. Um, so one thing I wanted to chat with you about before we close out, um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, storytelling in video media production, um, what your, your flow is when you, um, when you interview people? Yeah, what I really love about interviewing people is, for me, I don't know how it is for you, Jessica, but for me, everything completely slows down and I just become very myopic and really into, you know, I've done my research. So I know that, and that's the most important thing is that, okay, this person's done their research and, and they got it right. Like, for example, when I interviewed comedians, one of the, for, my, for that one segment, Day in the Life of a Stand-Up uh, Comic, I asked all the comedians very much up front, how come all comedians or most comedians, you're playing to a club and let's say there's you know, 300 people there and you have 290 of them laughing. Instead of appreciating 290 people laughing, why do you find it that you have to play to those 10 people and try to get them to laugh? And immediately would go from the head, okay, this guy understands comedy. And then the, the interview would go a lot better because they saw me differently. And I would always try to do something like that. Or even when I interviewed the five Holocaust survivors, prior to us doing the interviews, I spoke to the two college professors and I got background inf information. One had just gone to Cuba. One actually in her late eighties, she had a new boyfriend. So we would converse about that and develop a rapport. And then we went to the interviews. It was just a continuation of the conversation we were having. So it's really all about just creating, you know, it's, I, I guess it must be the way like a performer is on stage when I'm interviewing somebody, I'm so in the present, it's kind of Zen-like where we're always thinking of something else. But when I'm interviewing somebody, it's one of the few times where I do have that flow vibe because I'm really very much just right there and I'm nowhere else. I'm not two minutes behind or two minutes ahead. I'm right in the present. And I, and I enjoy that feeling of, making that person as natural and as comfortable as possible and getting the best answers I can for whatever media I'm creating. And uh, so that, yeah. Yeah, that's the flow. Yeah, it's like, for me, it's like there's a connection, um, especially when you break the ice as well as you were just talking about, you know, you, you really, um, you say something and you know that the interviewee feels heard and then it just kind of opens the door for the connection and the conversation. At least that's how it is for me. Ab ab absolutely right. And before we wrap up, can I just tell you one other Eastside Comedy Club story that relates to Judd Apatow? Absolutely, please, please do. So again, um, like I said, and it was just funny because I know I've, you know, I don't know Judd Apatow and I've never met him, but of course I'm a fan of his movies and I'm super happy for all his success. And, you know, it's just, amazing that both of us, me as an independent filmmaker and him as somebody who's more of a box office big time filmmaker, we both got our earliest, earliest chops. And he's talked about it at Eastside Comedy Club was kind of the foundation for both of us. And again, he was the, uh, a dishwasher in the back. And I was the kid who worked at the video store, not a kid, but my late teens, early 20s. And the owner of the club, Richie Minavini, used to come in all the time. And he was kind enough to allow me to come into the club. And he treated me like I was a major promoter or manager. He couldn't have been any nicer to me. And you know, here I am, somebody making 10 bucks an hour at a video store. And Richie was treating me, you know, just unbelievably kind. And I got to know all the comedians and it did get me started. 
And Richie had told me the story about Judd because I got to know Richie and then even had a roast for Richie many years later. Again, another thing that went full circle and Kevin James was at the roast. My production company did the video of Richie's roast with all the comedians there. And um, so when Judd was the dishwasher there, he was an amazingly great dishwasher. And the reason he was a great dishwasher is because he wanted to stand in the back and watch the comedy and absorb the comedy and learn what would become his career and his future. And obviously in the restaurant business or anytime in the food business, it's hard to find a really good dishwasher. But Judd being awkward at that age, he was a high school kid, didn't really speak to anybody according to Richie. Again, I didn't know him. And so Richie went around to the waiters, waitresses and bartenders and especially the comedians and said, look, We've got this new dishwasher who's the best dishwasher I've ever, I've ever had. I believe he's mentally challenged. So don't make fun of him in any way, shape or form because I don't want to lose this guy as a dishwasher. And because he was so good at, at washing dishes and being on top of everything so he can come out and watch the, the comedy. And again, that ended up being a, you know, a guy who he thought was mentally challenged who ended up being on the cover of Time Magazine. <laughs> you know Judd Apatow so it's very yeah no that's pretty that's pretty funny and it's also just sort of a testament to um, how people evolve and people come into their own at different times yeah he was a high school kid so we were all you know and it made sense because if I I don't know his whole history but I think his first breakout show was Freaks and Geeks based upon Syas at high school which would kind of tie into him being a little bit of an awkward high school kid, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's one of the things I love the most about that series is, you know, from like growing up with high school TV shows where the characters were kind of glossy and knew what to say, just having like these really awkward characters, like really just spoke to me so much. No, me too, because we all, you know, we all related to, oh, that was like, you know, not even it was specifically like so-and-so, but you, you knew the vibe or the energy of those people were, were very much, it was very real. It was, it, it was so well done. It was brilliantly done. The, do- the documentary he did on Gary Shandling, amazing. Oh, yeah. Big, just amazing. So uh, before, I know I keep saying before we wrap up, but this time for real, um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything you would like to share? Yeah, what, what I'm working on right now, and I've had cartoons published in national magazine in, in national magazines. I don't do the artwork. I do the concept and the tagline. I've had about 20, 25 editorials that I've written published, all sorts of other things that I've written. So I'm, I'm actually putting together a somewhat of a memoir and a little bit of comedy and a little bit of social commentary. I'm actually writing my, my first book now. So I'm really... I'm really excited about that. And the other thing um, that was really fun about my last film, Impresarios and Visionaries, the title song, Elements, um, I wrote the lyrics to that song. And that was really, really a lot of fun, writing the lyrics to that, you know, to the title track of my last documentary. And it was recorded by wonderful musician, Kathy Krager. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Um, look, uh, we're looking forward to having your film here on December 16th um, at Syosset Library. And um, with that, we are going to close this chapter of Turn the Page. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.